So as I said, this lesson is very different from what we have been studying on spiritual warfare and some of the churches uh, in uh, Revelation 2 and 3. So uh, I hope you will enjoy this. How many heard me do something similar? It's been five years. Oh, just a few, really. So a lot of you have not heard this would be new material, which is good, and I uh, have changed some of it. So I want us to really look at the different signs that were given to different groups of people uh, regarding fulfilling prophecy and regarding the birth of Jesus Christ. And almost every one of these signs is going to be prefaced with the word behold. And behold means stop. Look, pay attention, listen. So that's what we want to do as we get into each group. Now I'm going to give you, first of all, the references that I'm using because I'm using more than just the Bible, although there's a lot of scripture involved. It says most of the lineage and history of the Messiah of the Bible is rooted in the area of Israel, especially the area surrounding Bethlehem. That were, Many of the prophecies were going to take place in Bethlehem. We're also going to see their significant types and photos and places that are going to be involved in this lesson. So we have some background. First of all, you need to understand what the Torah is. The Torah was written and handed down by God to Moses. And the Torah only includes all of the prophets, Psalms, and Proverbs. So of our Old Testament books that we know, 24 of them are in the Torah. Psalms, Proverbs, and the prophets. The Mishnah is also something we're going to be referring to today. And the Mishnah is the oral explanation of the written Torah. So you have the Torah, which was a lot of the Old Testament for the Hebrews and the Jews. And then you had people, the rabbis, came along and wrote commentaries on it. So this is like the commentaries that many of us used to study. These are where the rabbis took the Torah and then they wrote on it and expounded on it so the people could understand it. The other thing we're going to use is a book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, written by Alfred Edersheim. He is, was born in 1825 in Vienna. He was, a Jew, he was Jewish, and he was a scholar and a missionary. And he's written quite a book about Jesus Christ when he was born and his ministry on earth. The last reference I'm going to use was written by Gary Stearman, and it's a Christmas prophecy. Do you see the tower in the picture? And there's a place in the Bible that I was even unaware of till five years ago called the Tower of the Flock. And this is based on Micah 4.8, which we will get to uh, during the lesson. So we have a lot of different things to look at. This, you'll notice, is, a, is not a lesson that's really going to flow from one thing to another. I'm going to talk about this group, and then we'll move to this group and another group. So it may seem a little disjointed, but there's a lot of groups involved in the birth of Jesus Christ. And we want to look at their signs. Now, we know from previous lessons that the Jewish people, were they not taken to captivity, to Babylon. So they went from Jerusalem, from is different parts of Israel. They were taken over to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And we know they went in three shifts. 
We know that Daniel and some of the younger ones, the more elite, the talented ones, the gifted ones, they went in the first group. We know then that 80 years later, Ezra took the, this is not in your notes, uh, 80 years later, Ezra took the second group, and then year 94, here comes Nehemiah. And what's Nehemiah's purpose? Rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem that are still lying in rubble, even though they've been there 94 years. And so we have a group that's come back, and their prophet is Malachi. So the book of Nehemiah and Malachi, chronologically, is the end of the Old Testament. And so then we went into what they called the silent 400 years, but nothing was really silent. There was a lot going on. We did a lesson several months ago. What's going on behind the curtain, behind the scenes? God's silent. There's no prophet, but boys, there's stuff going on. And what's he doing? He's got to get everything ready for the birth of Jesus Christ. And it took about 400 years, and finally the Roman Empire has come to life, and they are oppressing the Jews. And that's the time when Jesus is going to be born. So we've got Roman rule established now, and we have Pharisees and Sadducees, which really rose up during that 400 years. So think about just the common people in Israel. They've kind of given up hope. It was 500 years ago that they got back in the land, built the temple, and trying to reestablish themselves as a nation. 500 years later, where are we under Roman rule? So they have had a very difficult time coming back as an established nation. But as it approaches the time for Jesus Christ to be born, there's an air of expectancy in the air because they know the Old Testament. They've got prophecies that they know are going to be fulfilled with his first coming. So there's a lot of hope that's rising within the people in Israel. They know the prophet Isaiah. We're going to read Isaiah 9-6, a very familiar passage. Handel wrote Handel's Messiah, a lot of it based on some of the prophecies of Isaiah. So just picture, he has not been born yet, but you know the prophets. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now at that time, I'm waiting for that, right? It has not been fulfilled. Then he's born, and now we have two sentences, basically, that have been fulfilled. Then it goes on. The government's going to be upon his shoulder, and his name is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Has that part of his prophecy ever happened? No. So here you have a verse where you have a partial fulfillment, and then you've got one that's going to take place years later. And that's what this verse is all about. He's born, the son is given. But the government's not on his shoulders yet. That will be in his 1,000-year millennial kingdom. So a lot of your prophecies, part of it's been fulfilled, but not all of it, and it's in the future. And then in Galatians 4.4, by the time the Roman Empire is in place and all of this, there's a passage that uh, Paul uses, when the fullness of time had come, was there an ordained specific time when God was going to send his son into the world? Yes, and so we know it, it with all the prophecies, it's all going to come together, and he will come at the perfect time. 
And then in Luke 2, 7, we have it fulfilled. She brought forth her firstborn. If your translation doesn't say firstborn, you write it in there. A lot of them will leave out firstborn, and it's critical. Because if you remember the Old Testament, the firstborn had rights that the others did not. He gets a double portion of the father's estate. He will be the leader of the family, and he will be the priest or the spiritual leader of the family. Many of your new translations just say she brought forth a son. No, firstborn. That's very important. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So part of that prophecy was fulfilled. For unto us a child is given, unto us a son is born, fulfilled there in the book of Luke. So let's talk about the sign for Israel, his first coming. The, the Messiah was supposed to descend from heaven and enter the human race as a what? Okay, you and I believe in the Trinity. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We know that John teaches us that Jesus Christ was God wrapped in flesh. So he, be, he took on human flesh. He came and lived a life here on earth. So let's look at their sign. And it says, behold, what does that mean? Stop, look, and listen. Pay attention to what's after behold. In Isaiah 7:14, we have another prophecy. Therefore, the Lord himself is going to give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive. She's going to bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So, we go to Luke 1, and 27 to see the prophecy fulfilled. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, and he's going to give a message to who? A virgin. That's our sign. A virgin who's betrothed, that means she's engaged. And in the Jewish culture, when they were betrothed, it was as if they were married. Okay. She's betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. He's of the house of David. That's critical because he has to be of the house of David to be the earthly father of Jesus Christ. And the virgin's name is Mary. And we go on. So the angel comes into Mary and he said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And it says when she saw him, the angel, she was, wow, most of us probably would have passed out. <laughs> Just not only troubled, but mercy, there's an angel. And he's got this message for me. And he said, fear not. Do you know fear not is in the Bible about 350 times? And it's always in a time when people would be fearful. And something's really going on. And they say, fear not. Fear not, Mary. You have found favor with God. Behold. Now pay attention to what I'm going to tell you. You're going to conceive in your womb. And you're going to bring forth a son. And they're going to call, you will call his name Jesus. He will be great. He's going to be the, called the Son of the Most High. Then Lord God is going to give to him the throne of his father David. Remember we have said every word in the Bible is important. You don't skip anything. You slow down. Why did they say this? Because this was promised to King David back in 2 Samuel. 
All right, so this is the throne we're talking about, and God's going to give it to Jesus Christ. If you want to put in your notes, he promised it to Jesus Christ in Psalm 2. That's your messianic psalm where God the Father is promising the kingdom to Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to say, he's going to reign over the house of Jacob, which is Israel, forever. And of his kingdom, how long is it going to last? Forever. No end. All right. Now, Mary said to the angel, how can this be? Because I don't know a man. And you say, but she's betrothed. That is an engagement betrothed period where they are not together for at least a year. And he's gone over there to build a house for him, But they're betrothed, and it is uh, a very, uh, it's just like we're married, except you're over there getting our house ready. And the angel answered and said to her, listen to this. The Holy Ghost is going to come upon you, and he, the power of the very highest is going to overshadow you. Therefore, also that holy thing which is going to be born of thee is going to be the Son of God. Can you even imagine how Mary felt? Now, we have commentators for years, even today, and they will always be around. They're even in our seminaries who do not believe in the virgin birth. So, I want us to look at, they, they are listening to... Do y'all remember the serpent in the garden? Did God really say that? You know, how can this be? So, that he's still whispering all of that into people's ears today. I want us to go and look at, do we have something to validate this, that she was a virgin? So here's the sign, and context always matters. This is Israel's sign, we're looking for a virgin. The Lord himself is going to give you a sign. The virgin is going to conceive, bear a son, and you call his name Emmanuel. Now, if the Bible said, there's a woman of any marriageable age that is going to give birth to this son, that's a daily event, sometimes many times a day all over the world. That is, that's not significant at all. But it is significant to say it's a virgin that is going to be uh, give birth to this child. Now, I want us to dig in a little bit and go to the Septuagint to find out, is this validated anywhere else that she was a virgin? And let's see what it says in the Septuagint. About 600 years after Isaiah, so can y'all picture Isaiah giving the prophecy? About 600 years later, we have the Isaiah scrolls. And they have the Torah. They have some of the Old Testament. And the Septuagint, 600 years later, is going, to be, is going to be birthed. And we'll look at that. It's the third century before Christ. 300 years. And Demetrius of Phelerone suggests this to Ptolemy Philadelphus. Let's invite a bunch of Jewish scholars. And there were also had to be, they had to be a scholar in Hebrew and in Greek. And we're taking them to Alexandria. Now, Alexandria is in Egypt, and they had already uh, deported a lot of Jews, and they were living in this area. What language were the Jewish people speaking? Greek. 
Greek became the universal language, and a lot of them couldn't even speak Hebrew, nor could they read it, because they had been Hellenized under Constantine. And so we have all of this going on. Now, 72 scholars worked on the Old Testament, on the Torah, which is why they called it the Septuagint version. The Septuagint from Latin means 70. And so we take the Torah, and man, this is in Hebrew, and although I'm Jewish, I can't read it because all I speak is Greek. So they said, y'all have to take that Old Testament and get it into Greek so the people can read it and understand it. That's the Septuagint. Now, if you go to the Septuagint and go to that passage in Isaiah, here's what it says. In Greek, the word virgin is parthenos, and it means someone who's never had a sexual experience. They make it very clear. Is Greek a real specific language? Yes. And so you, we have validation that the Bible, even in Hebrew, when it said virgin, it means someone who's never had a sexual experience. So the Hebrew scholars began to say, we're expecting a virgin birth. And it will be fulfilled 150 years later. So you have a lot of history to trace there. And then when Mary and Joseph have baby Jesus there in Bethlehem, she's a virgin. That was well known. And so you have prophecy fulfilled. Now here's another. We're moving on to something else now. There are two terms you need to know. And I didn't even know this was in the Bible till five years ago. There's a place in the Bible called Migdal Eater. You know. Okay. Migdal means tower, and eater means flock. So there's a place over here in Genesis called Migdal Eater. And so we want to trace that and find out about it, what it has to do with the birth of Jesus. This is a picture, this is a ruins of what they uh, say were some towers that were in Israel, and they have found them in other places. Jesus the, the scholars say was possibly born in a shelter that looks similar to this. We know you have to unlearn your Christmas card that shows the, the beautiful lit stable and all these people and these animals there. But many of your scholars will tell you it was probably more like in a cave type thing with rock and so forth. So this is a picture of what they think uh, Migdal Eater looks something similar to this, and we're going to really dig into it. The other term I want you to understand is Ephrata, which is the ancient name of Bethlehem. And so when I go to Genesis 35, Ephrata, Bethlehem, and Migdal Eater are all mentioned, and it's all with the death of Rachel, who is the wife of Jacob. So let's dig into Genesis 35. It says, they were journeying from Bethel. Who's they? It's Jacob, Rachel, Leah, all of his servants, all of his animals, because he, God told him to go home now because he's been at Uncle Laban's over here in Haran for 20 years. And God says, it's time for you to go home. And so they're on their way back, and they're at Bethel, and they come a little ways to Ephratah which is an ancient name for Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephratah. So on my map, you see the red dot. They came to Bethel, and Jacob and all of his wives and children are on their way home, and they're going to come down to Ephratah, which is the green dot, Bethlehem Ephratah. 
Now, the rest of the story, Rachel is in travailed birth. She is in hard labor. And it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, you are also going to have this son. And this is going to be the son named Benjamin. The only other son she had was Joseph. So this is her second son. So Joseph is just devastated because this is the wife he loves. Remember, he worked a long time to get her. He worked seven years and on the wedding night took off the veil, and it wasn't her. It was her sister, Leah, and that's not the one he wanted. So as she's dying, she says, I want to name this child Benoni. And Jacob says, I want to name him Benjamin. Let's look at the meaning of these two names. Rachel's travail pictures the birth pangs of the Messiah. And these two names give us two pictures of Jesus Christ in his life. Benoni means son of sorrow. Did Jesus come and suffer as the man of sorrows? Okay, and Jacob says, I want to name him Benjamin, son of my right hand. So is Jesus Christ now, after the ascension, at the Father's right hand? So we have in this boy who got two names. He's the son of sorrow, and he's the son of my right hand. So here is a picture from um, the mid-19th century. It says, Rachel died, and she's buried in the way to Ephratah, which is Bethlehem. It's the same thing, Bethlehem, Ephratah. And here's a picture of her tomb, the ruins of it, in the mid-19th century. And here's a picture of it for the tourist over in that area. And it says, Rachel died, and she's buried in the way to Ephratah, which is Bethlehem, and Jacob's going to set up a pillar. Remember, they set up pillars always as memorials and reminders. Now, I found this very interesting because we're at Bethlehem Ephratah where Rachel is going to have son of my sorrow, son of my right hand. Y'all following? Okay, good. So Bethlehem means house of bread. Ephratah means you'll bear fruit and be fruitful. This is just... when I know, woo, when I study... And I see how stuff is so interconnected in this Bible. You know that this Bible has to be divinely inspired. And you can stand on the authority of this word. So let's look at this. In John 6.51, when Jesus is out doing ministry, he tells the people that he is the bread of life, came down from heaven, right? Now, I found this graphic, and you know how I love graphics, and now I really get this. So here's a person that made a loaf of bread into slices, and it looks like a dwelling. And so when we dwell in the house of bread, Jesus said, is he the bread of life? And I'm in Bethlehem, Ephratah. Bethlehem means uh, bread of life or house of bread. So when I dwell in him, is he in me? Am I in him? So when I dwell in him and dwell in the word, Ephratah, I will bear fruit and be fruitful. Yes, praise God. Yeah. Now, y'all didn't wow so much like I did. Because I thought this was really cool. Thank you. <laughs> I really thought that was really cool. Now, we'll move on to Ruth and Boaz. And Boaz also is a type of Jesus Christ. And Ruth becomes his wife. 
And they start their family here at Bethlehem Ephratah. And so she and Boaz have a guy named Obed who has Jesse, and Jesse has David, King David. And then Jesus is going to be born of that line. So here we are at Bethlehem Ephratah, and this family is going to follow the line to give birth to Jesus Christ, and we're in the house of bread at Ephratah to bear fruit and be fruitful. See, it just, all the connections just... Okay, number two. King David is born in Bethlehem. Was he a shepherd? We know he's a type of Jesus Christ. So he's a shepherd. He was anointed king of Israel. Is Jesus Christ going to be anointed king of the whole world? Yes, that hasn't happened yet. And the city of Bethlehem became the city of David. It was the same thing. Now it says, Jacob set a pillar upon her grave when he had to leave Rachel there. And Rachel, the name means little you or little lamb. So you think about that. And it was only the female lambs that were used for peace offerings. And she's giving birth, and their little boy is son of my right hand and man of sorrows. And he's the only one that is going to bring peace to this world. So I just thought that was another interesting thing. So we're going to go about a thousand years. Rachel's died in Genesis 35. And we're going to move forward and go to the book of Micah a thousand years later. And he's still giving a prophecy about the Messiah's birth and where he's going to be born. And so now we have the prophecy about a little town of Bethlehem. But it's still 700 years before Jesus will ever come. Okay? So let's see what Micah has to say. Very important. He says, Bethlehem Ephratah. Out of thee shall he come forth. So, I mean, that, there's a prophecy right there. And the reason he had to say Bethlehem Ephratah, so they would know which Bethlehem he's talking about, there is another Bethlehem up in the land of Zebulun by the Sea of Galilee. So you have, he had to write this. He's Holy Spirit inspired so they would know which Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephratah which is the one right down by Jerusalem, only about five miles. Bethlehem Ephratah, out of thee shall he come forth. And he goes on to say, You are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you shall come forth one for me who will be the ruler in Israel. His coming forth is from old. He's the ancient of days. Jesus Christ never had, had a beginning. He never had an end. He will never have an end. Is that hard for us to comprehend? It's hard to wrap your head around, but you accept it by faith because this is what the book teaches. Now, now we're going to come up to the birth. And so we know what Bethlehem Ephratah is. We know what Migdal Eater is, and we're going to get back to that. So now it's about time. And remember the scripture in Galatians, in the fullness of time... Jesus is going to send forth his son when it's time. And now we've got uh, conditions that are, uh, it's about time. Okay, Luke 2, 1. There went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. Who is in charge now? The Romans. That all the world is going to be taxed. 
So we're now going to see some fulfillment of prophecy coming here. And everyone's going to be taxed, everyone to his own city. Now I have a map here for you, and the red dot kind of up at the top of the map is Nazareth, because this is where Joseph and Mary were living. And now they're going to have to journey down to the blue dot, because he's of the house of David. And they have to go to Bethlehem in order to uh, meet the requirement. You go to your city uh, in order to be taxed. So it says, Joseph goes up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth. He's going to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So there's a scripture telling you that it's the same place. Because he's of the house and lineage of whom? David and Bethlehem is the city of David and if you're of that house and lineage that's where you go to be taxed with Mary his betrothed wife and she is with child so Bethlehem Ephratah is where they're headed the house of bread bearing fruit and it says the days were accomplished that she should be delivered and while they were there the time came for the baby to be born and she brought forth her firstborn Make sure your Bible says that. If it doesn't, you write it in there. And say, shame on you for leaving it out. She brought forth her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now I'm going back 1,700 years, back to Jacob and bearing Rachel. Okay? Y'all with me? And it says, Israel or Jacob is now going to journey and pitch his tent where? At the Tower of Eder, Migdal Eder. This is the first mention of this tower in the Bible. It's first mention of something always critical. It's always crucial. And whatever it means, the first time it's mentioned is generally what it, it, it will keep that meaning through the rest of the Bible. And it's the first mention, the Tower of Eder, or the Tower of Flock, and we're right at Bethlehem, near Bethlehem. So now I'm going to take some information from the book, The Tower of the Flock, and based on Micah 4, and some information from Eidersheim's book on the life and times of Jesus the Messiah. Now, that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, was that a settled conviction from all the prophets? They knew that. Equally so was the belief that he was going to be revealed from Migdal Eder, the tower of the flock, and that's from Micah. That's from Micah 4.8. So number one here, here is the picture of Migdal Eder, a two-story tower, and think of it's built, there's pastures for sheep, right? So we have a pasture for sheep, and they had a tower like this. And the person watching over the sheep would be in the top. You see the red dot? Had like a little thatched roof over it. And this is from one in the 1800s that they found the ruins of one and the pictures in the 1800s. Now, Migdal Eater is not a watchtower for ordinary flocks. Because in Bethlehem and that surrounding area, there are untold numbers of pastures of sheep and all kinds of shepherds all around there. But this particular one lays close to town on the road to Jerusalem. These are going to be the sheep that are going to have to go to the temple to be sacrificed. So, 
According to Jerome, who lived in the three and four hundreds and he lived in Bethlehem, he said this tower, Migdal Eater, was about a thousand paces from Bethlehem. So we're very close. Now, uh, according to Eusebius of Caesarea, who lived in the two and three hundreds, he took these shepherd's fields that were right outside of Bethlehem and he linked them and said that these were at the tower of Migdal Eater. And Migdal Eater is in the Bible, as we've seen in Genesis 35. Now, early Christian testimony refers to this area below, I'm right below Bethlehem. They said this is the shepherd's place of the sheepfold. So we have a pasture that is for particular sheep. And we're going to get to that. Now, you see the watchtower of the flock? It acts like a fort. Because somebody's got to be up high watching over the sheep. And so that's why they had this tower. And then that's where the red dot is. They're on the second story. Now I'm going to take some information from the Mishnah, which is the rabbi's commentary. And he talks about the watchtower of the flock. Now, here is another picture from the 1930s. This was near Samaria, and this ruin is a perfect example, they said, of the tower that is believed to have been at Migdal Eder, near Bethlehem, at Christ's birth. So they think something very similar to this. Now, these flocks that are close to Bethlehem and close to this tower, they are the ones that are going to, they're eventually going to wind up in Jerusalem at the temple to be sacrificed. You think about before Jesus died, there were untold millions of lambs that were slain. The daily things, the evening things, all the feasts, etc. Lots of lambs have had to give their life. So these were these special flocks. So here we have what they called a temple flock, and these lambs were carefully bred over many years because we have to have lambs that are what? Free of spot, wrinkle, or blemish. So we're, it's a, like a special breeding you have, and so they're developing a breed that will be this way in order to be sacrificed at the temple. Now there was a regulation in their... Uh, I can't think of the word. Oh, well. There was a regulation that the flocks had to be within five miles of the temple. So they had to keep them very close because there were lots of lambs being sacrificed daily. And so the, the flocks had to be very close, five miles. Now, you think you live way out here, and you've got to show up at the temple at least three times a year. There were three feasts that God said every male... All over Israel, you have to be in Jerusalem, and you're going to bring your sacrifices there. Now, what's going to happen if I live 90-something miles away, and I may have a little sheep? How is he, what kind of shape is he going to be in when I get there? He's going to have some spots, wrinkles, and blemishes. So, that's why if you were here when we did the gates, we have the sheep gate. Number one gate uh, there in Jerusalem and they had sheep gate right outside the temple. And so it was right outside the wall, and people would come from miles, and you go pick out your sheep. And they had a sheep pool where then you could clean him, and then you take him in, and he's your sacrifice. So you don't want to do this and bring one from 100 miles away. 
So they had a lot of sheep there for the people that were coming. We're going to skip to another sign, and then we're going to start putting all this together. In Luke 2, 8 through 12, we've got another sign, and this sign is going to be some angels coming to some shepherds. And it says, There were in the same country there some shepherds abiding in the field, and they're keeping watch over their flock by night. And in the next verse it says, Lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, stop and see what they're going to say. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which is going to be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this is your sign. Different groups have a different sign. Here's the sign for those shepherds. You're going to find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Totally different sign than for the nation of Israel. Now... Why is this a sign to these particular shepherds? Let's answer the question. According to the Mishnah, an ordinary shepherd, if I'm just a shepherd, you know, and I've had no training, how am I supposed to know how to care for these sheep that have to have a certain thing about them? They have to be no spot, wrinkle, or blemish. How am I going to know how to care for them and get them up to the temple where they're going to be sacrificed? An ordinary shepherd out all, all over the nation of Israel is not going to know this. So these are shepherds that have been trained to be for the temple flocks. They had no, the ordinary shepherd had no training in religious ordinances. Did they have to be done a certain way? Yes. And so they didn't know how to do the sacrificial offerings. So this manner of life, I'm just an ordinary shepherd out here taking care of these sheep. But this manner of life would make it virtually impossible. I wouldn't know how to abide by strict legal religious observances. I'd need to be trained in order to be able to do that. So they say these special trained shepherds were taught by temple priests. And so the temple priest went to these particular shepherds and taught them how to care for these male lambs that are going to be destined to be a sacrifice at the temple. So this is like a holding place. The, the field that right there by the tower, close to Bethlehem, we're like a holding place for the sacrificial lambs. But I've got to have shepherds that are trained to know what to do and how to take care of them. So these are some quotes from a rabbinical writing. They were priests from the temple. So they were really temple priests who went out to do shepherd's work to assist. So these weren't just ordinary shepherds. They were trained, they were priests, but they were the ones that were sent out here to be a temple shepherd. A temple priest became a temple shepherd. Everybody following? Okay. Now, because you're going to have the birthing of the sacrificial lambs and they need to do everything correctly so that the lambs will arrive unblemished for sacrifice. Because what would happen if they offered a lamb that had blemish or anything? It's not acceptable. So this was real important. So here's our little shepherd boy and he is going to be watching over the flock. 
They had that second story tower. Now, you see the red dot underneath? It has an opening. This is where they would take the pregnant ewes that were about to give birth, and they would give birth there in the shelter under the tower. And so they would take care of them there, and we can see what the shepherd priest would do. The shepherd priest would bring in the pregnant sheep from the field. Now remember, we're only in one field. There's all kinds of fields out there, just ordinary shepherds. They would bring the pregnant sheep in from the field, take them in that, the tower's bottom, and the sheep would give birth in there. The lower floor had a room designated for delivery and protection of these little lambs, and they kept a manger in there. Now, here's a picture of a manger. It's not what we think of. It's not what's on your Christmas card. And they, it was, they kept them clean due to the sacred role of the lambs, trying to keep them from harm. So as soon as the lamb was born, you've got these, these priests who are a temple shepherd. They wipe off the lambs and they inspect them. Make sure that they're okay and that they pass inspection. They wrap the lamb now with strips of cloth. Where did I get that cloth? It's from the worn-out undergarments of the priest because they had all white garments. And so, and they cut them in strips when they needed new ones, and they used these, and they wrapped them, and those were the swaddling cloths to keep the lamb from getting blemished. Now the priest then would place the lamb onto the manger to make sure it didn't get trampled because it's destined for sacrifice at the temple and the regulation says it has to be within five miles. So this meets all of the requirements. Now, so the shepherds that raised and cared for these sacrificial sheep were the first people, I believe, that the angels actually delivered the message and gave the sign about the birth of the Savior. What's the purpose of those temple flocks? Are they born to die? Absolutely, because they were going to cover the sins of the people. Remember, they were rolled forward for another year until the Lamb of God came and gave his life. So the arrival of the ultimate Lamb of God, here he is born in Bethlehem. It revealed to those responsible for watching over the sacrificial lambs, because every sacrificial lamb, untold millions, always were pointing to whom? the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And so we know, we've, if you've been in church very long and you know, studied and everything, you know that every lamb was a picture of the Lamb of God who would come and fulfill prophecy. So they told him, here's your sign, you shepherds. You're going to find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and he's lying in a manger. That's the sign to these shepherds. So the rabbinical writings from Eidersheim tell us what swaddling cloths are. They were cloths that the priests used to prepare the lamb for sacrifice. They were also linens that women would wear under their main clothing when they traveled so that they could be buried in their own linens if they died on the trip. This was the custom among Middle Eastern women in Jesus' day, and it was culturally the proper thing to do. 
So if the swaddling cloths were customarily burial linens, then Jesus, the Messiah, when he was born, was wrapped in burial cloths immediately after his birth. This would be another unmistakable sign to these temple shepherds that the Messiah, who's going to sacrifice his life for his sheep, was this baby wrapped in burial cloths, maybe even the swaddling cloths of his mother. She's just traveled almost 100 miles. These swaddling cloths, as you can see, they're cut out from worn-out priestly garments. Now, many of them, they would braid together. We've got all these worn-out things, and they would take strips of them and now braid them together and use them as a wick. And what's that about? Well, let's go to the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, there were four great four-branch menorahs that they placed in temple courts. And I've got a picture here. Do you see the priest in his linen garment? And he's pouring oil into each little container. Do you see at the end of my red little circles the wick? Those wicks are braided pieces of the worn-out cloth. And so they keep the oil in there, they have the wick, and then this will burn. You know, they will uh, put fire to it, and it will burn. Now, this is a large menorah that, is in the, that was in the temple courts in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. These were 73 feet tall. That's 12 times taller than a 6-foot man, right? Is that right? Okay. And so it illuminated the temple courts. And when they came for the Feast of Tabernacles, it provided the setting. This is what they were doing, and this is how it was lit when Jesus proclaims, I am the light of the world. Because he went to the Feast of Tabernacles, we learn in the book of John. So here's an artist rendition and giving you to scale what this would have looked like. So you see the temple, and do you see the two large looks like a pole there, and you see the menorahs on top. Okay, each of these was 73 feet. Do you see the little guy in orange? He's climbing up. So this was his job. He has to carry buckets of oil up to the top, and you cannot let the oil run out. And so they had this job, and then the, the candles, the little vessels there, they put the oil, and then they have wicks made from the priest cloth. Okay, y'all with me? Okay, so this is what they were doing during the Feast of Tabernacles, and this is how they figure it looked, because we've had scriptures before that said when this was lit during the Feast of Tabernacles, it would light up all over Jerusalem, except, y'all remember? The Kidron Valley. Though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, it stayed dark because it was so high and so steep that the light did not go there. So anyway, and he said, I am the light of the world. So the first garments to adorn our high priest were these garments, worn out garments of the priest that wrapped, these were the swaddling cloths, and he is the light of the world. So in Chapter 2, verse 13. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Now pay attention. When the angels left, 
So the angels are gone, and it says they went back to heaven. And the shepherds are talking to one another. Do y'all remember which shepherds we're talking about? And they said, let's go to Bethlehem and go see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about, because it's prophesied over and over in the Old Testament. And they knew these prophecies. So what is it they know? They came with what? They immediately went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. The angels gave them no directions. No directions. They were told it was the city of David, and he would be in a manger. They knew exactly where to go. So, Migdal Eater. Uh, manger is a uh, Strong's word. I don't even know how to pronounce it. It's a feeding trough. And it says, this was the tower of the flock where the priest would clean the sacrificial lamb with swaddling cloths and examine them for perfection. When the shepherds heard the babe was wrapped in swaddling clothes, they knew exactly where to go to find the manger. So the shepherds knew to look for the Messiah in a manger, tower of the flock, in the fields of Bethlehem. And in Micah 4.8 had been the prophecy you, O Migdal Eater, stronghold of the daughter of Zion, it shall come to you. The former rule will come, the reign of the daughter of Jerusalem. They knew where to go. So Micah, who foretold Bethlehem as the place of the Messiah's birth, even mentions Migdal Eater, which was where Rachel had died and given birth. So when these shepherd priests went into Bethlehem, they saw baby Jesus wrapped in the swaddling cloths, lying in the manger. Don't you know they probably said, there is the Lamb of God, prepared for sacrifice, unblemished. So he said that's their sign, swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Now being born in the tower of the flock, and I'm... I'm, saying, I'm, I'm assuming this from all of the information which I've given you. Place Jesus' birth in the traditional location for all the Passover lambs where they were being in those fields in that pasture. It's fitting since he became the Passover lamb who will take away the sins of the world. So it explains how the shepherds knew where to go to find the babe, why these shepherds were notified. And they knew exactly where to go with haste. Their holy calling to certify Passover lambs upon their birth. Jesus was born, I believe, at that tower of the flock when you put all the pieces together, surrounded by some holy shepherds who actually were temple priests who went out to do the shepherding, set aside to certify the birth of the ultimate Passover lamb. Migdal means tower, and it offers a place of refuge, splendor and vantage and we can couple that with proverbs 18:10 the name of our lord is a strong tower righteous men will run into it and be safe now for the last part we're going to look at the visit of the magi this is very interesting and we're going to go to matthew 2 1 to 2 and it says we're looking at behold again Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod. Behold, so we want to stop, pay attention. Wise men are coming from the east 
to Jerusalem. And they're asking the question, where is he who is born? That's a key word, star it. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Because we saw his star in the where? In the east. Where does your Christmas card have the star? Over the manger. It says, we saw his star in the east, and now we have come to worship him. So let's think here. Who are the Magi? How did they obtain knowledge about the Messiah of Israel who was going to be born king of the Jews? Where and how did they get the sign of a certain star that would herald his birth? Where did they learn all this? Why would they make a long and perilous journey? We're talking a long journey because they came from the east, which would be modern-day Iran and Afghanistan. And they're going to worship a Jewish child? Why? They are from the east, and they're Gentiles. So, I mean, this is very interesting. They said, we saw his star. How did they know it was his? They came to seek the one to whom it pointed the one that's born king of the Jews. So, number one, the Magi, they were a cast, a group of men that specialized in astronomy, astrology, and natural science. And their first reference, we get to go to the book of Daniel. Daniel 2, 2. In the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar sent for mediums which, as a Christian and a believer, we are told never. But Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan. He sent for mediums, so the king gave orders to summon his diviner priest, his mediums, his sorcerers, his Chaldeans, to, I want to know what my dream was, remember? And when they came and stood before the king, he said, I've had a dream, and I'm anxious to understand it. We're going to learn about Daniel and who he was because it's Daniel, the one that could not only interpret the dream, he told him the dream, and the others could not. Okay, Daniel's title becomes Rab Mag. He is the chief of the Magi. He is the principal administrator in a Babylonian Persian empire because we have Persia and Babylon over here. Okay, and Daniel never left Babylon that we know of after he was about 16. He's, he was raised over here in Babylon. And so he becomes the principal administrator, not only of Babylon, but also the Persian guys like him really well. So he has a high office. Daniel 2.48, the king promotes Daniel and gave Daniel many great gifts. And he made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon. And he was the chief administrator over who? All those wise men. And Daniel's number one. Now, according to tradition, and this is from some of the Jewish writings, Daniel formed a group of Persian priests because he has been in Babylon and now he's head of the guys in Persia. And so he forms a group of Persian priests during his time. He shared Gabriel's message in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And he taught them all about it. And he said, I want you to pass it down, father to son, and on down. Now, 
and it would be announced, he told them, in due time by a what? A star. Now, number, the next one. Daniel, they, it says in the writings, Daniel set aside all that wealth that the kings kept giving him. They, he set aside the wealth, and he wanted that transferred to the Magi to present a gift to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm telling you stuff that is in these books that is tradition from rabbinical writings and so forth. And to present this as a gift to the Messiah when it came time for his birth. Now, 200 years after the prophecy of Messiah's birth by Micah, that's Micah 4 8, the tower of the flock, and Bethlehem Ephratah, it had to be that particular Bethlehem. 200 years after that, God reveals to Daniel in 537 BC, Daniel. Chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. You should know the exact date Jesus is going to ride in on the donkey during Passover week. They should have known the exact day because it's prophesied. And it happened on that day. And so the trigger to begin the countdown, here's the prophecy. And when this, when this certain thing happens, Start counting 173,880 days, which is also 483 years. And so here, when this happens, start counting, start counting, start counting. And when you get there, boom, here he comes in on the donkey. They should have known it from the prophecy if they would study their Bible. And the date, the trigger happened was March 14th, 445 B.C. And you can do the math and study it and figure it all out. Sure enough... Jesus shows up on the donkey 173,880 days later after the trigger. What was the trigger? Artaxerxes. He gives a specific commandment to the people. It's time for you to go back and rebuild Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. Now there had been three commandments, but number one was to go back and build your temple. Well, that's not my trigger, so I don't start counting yet. The next one was to go back and to, I forget the second one. And then the third one, you go back and rebuild Jerusalem. That's the trigger. Oh, that's the one I've been waiting for, if you know your Bible. So, and then they started counting. Now, the descendants of Daniel's priesthoods, this is really going to throw off your Christmas card. They were not kings. In our songs we sing, We Three Kings, they weren't kings. They were a priesthood from the Medo-Persian Empire. They were the wise men, so to speak, under Daniel. The ancient Magi, in all these historical writings, it was a hereditary, hereditary priesthood of the Medes, and they were credited with profound and extraordinary knowledge, especially in astronomy and religion. So after some Magi who had been in the court with Daniel... They proved to be expert in the interpretation of dreams. So Darius the Great, who was one of the Persian leaders, he put them over the state religion in Persia. So these are these wise men, the Magi, and now they are over the state religion in Persia. So they have a role similar, who's over the, the spiritual part with the Jews, the Levites. That's the... That's the kind of uh, office that they had, except they're going to a pagan god. 
Okay. Now, next. Over the following 500 years after Daniel, they became a powerful priesthood because they have, they've gotten all kinds of promotions. And they are influential in the affairs of the Parthian kingdom. And I'm going to show you where that was. And here is the thing. No king in all of the realm could reign unless they approved it. That's how much power they had. Can you imagine how Herod's going to feel? He didn't get their kingship from them. Okay, so no king could reign without their approval. And the Magi became the supreme peace, uh, priestly caste of the whole Persian Empire. And they continued in subsequent periods of the Seleucids, which were Syria, and the Parthians. So let's look at the political background of this group. Since the days of Daniel, the Persians and the Jews nations were closely intertwined. Let's see why. The Jews and the Persians at one time were under Seleucid rule. Who were the Seleucids? The Syrians. Okay, so they were under that rule, treated awful. This is Syrians, and they were cruel. And so Jews and Persia both, so they kind of had a bond. We don't like being under them. And subsequently, both of them gained their independence, and they were no longer under the Seleucid rule. How did this happen? With the Jews, we go back to the silent 400 years, who cut them? The Maccabean Revolt. And so the Maccabees came into play, <clears throat> and the Jews were no longer under Syria, the Seleucids. And then over here, the Persians became the dominant group of the Parthian Empire. I know this is getting a little hard to follow, but you have four weeks to study it till our next lesson. So here's Iran and Afghanistan. Do you see kind of the purpley color on the map? This is the Parthian Empire at that time. And that's where the Magi are going to come from, from this Parthian Empire, <clears throat> which is Iran and Afghanistan. So it was at this time, the Magi, they now have a priestly role, and they're the top dogs in the government. So they are top priests, and they are top in the government. This is significant when we're getting around to the time of Jesus. So they were the upper house council of the Megastenes, and they had the absolute choice, who is going to be king of your realm? That's how much power they had. So we have Magi, who are really Parthian priests, and they have a lot of power for the government. Central to their philosophy was the belief handed down to them over the centuries starting with Daniel teaching, one day God is going to send someone and he's going to be born the king of the Jews. And how are you going to know? You're going to look for his star. So the general timing of the coming of this king was known to them from Daniel's teaching and there was a confirming sign that was going to be given to them. And so they began searching the heavens for that promised sign. There's a new star in the eastern sky. So that's what they were looking for. So number three, upon seeing his star, they know, guess what? 
And they knew he was going to be born in that area. So now they're going to start out on a long journey because they want to go see the one who's born, seek an audience with King Herod, and they want to worship the one that was born, King of the Jews. So Parthia had earlier fought off a Roman invasion. Here's Parthia, here's the Roman Empire. And the Rome's, Roman Empire wanted control over them, and they, no. So they gained their independence, and they fought them off. So Parthia became an independent kingdom about 250 B.C., and they're growing, and they're growing, and they're growing. So about the time Jesus is born, they had a very large empire. So they're very powerful, as is Rome, but they're over here in the Far East. Parthia had several successful clashes with Rome. 63 B.C., the Pompey, remember, he came in. He was the first Roman to conquer Israel, and he attacked Parthia, but he had, did not have any luck. In 55 B.C., the Romans lost 30,000 troops in a clash with Parthia. In 37 B.C., we're getting closer to the birth of Jesus, Parthia went and clobbered Rome again, and they drove out all the Roman opposition. Rome doesn't like Parthia very well. And so we go on. Now you've got these three, they say three. Forget that. They weren't kings, and they weren't, there weren't three. These are important, powerful people. They are not going to strike out on this long journey going through enemy country with three people. It was an entourage of people. You don't send your three powerful people out, or how many ever there were, you don't send them out all by themselves on this long journey. You're going to have a lot of people around them to protect them, and they're going to enemy territory. So Parthia, because they had fought off Roman invasion before, who's entrenched in Israel where they're going? Rome. And the Magi, they are our enemy. So when the people of uh, Jerusalem see the Parthian people coming in in this huge caravan, don't you know they were fearful? Now, Herod is going to have a slippery rock now. Herod had been given the title King of the Jews by Caesar. He's just given that title. Now, but he could not enter the city for almost three years. It took a five-month Roman siege by the troops before it was even safe for Herod to go in, even though he had been assigned to be king. But he, he couldn't go in there. So he gained the throne of a rebellious buffer state that was situated between two mighty contending empires. Now, if you look at the map, you'll see this easier. The orange over there, that's the Parthian Empire. The blue over here is the Roman Empire. Who's in the middle? Judea and Israel and all of that. They're the buffer zone. And Rome has them. Parthia is going to have to come into there. And Herod has been made king of these people that, that don't like him. So it's not a very good place for him. He is an Edomite. He's an enemy of the Jews. And his own subjects, the Jews... They know those Parthians are coming. Hey, we have been together before. We need your help. So they, he was afraid of that. So we have a precarious visit now. There's a group of Persian, Parthian, 
and they had the power to be a king maker. They entered Jerusalem during Herod's reign. And we go back to Matthew 2 now. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, what happened? Wise men from the east are coming, and they want to know where is he that's born king of the Jews. We saw his star in the east, and we have come, and we want to worship him. Where is he? So they, here they are, and of course the pictures are only going to show three. But where is he born king of the Jews? That was the question. We saw his star in the east, so we know he's been born. And here's Herod. Can you imagine how he feels? What's going on in his mind? And the Bible tells us Herod was troubled and all of Jerusalem. They were all troubled at this. Herod's reaction was understandably one of fear because you consider the background of the Roman-Parthian rivalry that has prevailed for a long time. So these group of Persian Parthians arrive in Jerusalem. They are the ones that have the power to determine who is king there. So he's all troubled. He's not Jewish. He's an Edomite. He was appointed by the Roman Senate. He is a pretender. He is a pretending king over this area. This powerful foreign magi said, there's one who's been born king of the Jews. So surely one born king of the Jews is going to have a more powerful claim than a foreign appointee. Absolutely. So he gathers all of his chief priests and his scribes, and he says, where is this Christ to be born? See, he doesn't know. He does not know. And so Micah 5, 2, they're like, don't you know the prophets? See, they didn't know, he didn't know the prophecies. And he said, the Messiah that's coming to the Jewish people is going to be born in Bethlehem. And they told him, it's already known from prophecy regarding the place in Israel where that ruler's going to be born. And so his own people tell him, it was settled from days of eternity, he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. But he didn't know that. And it says in Matthew 2, 6, Thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come the governor that's going to rule my people Israel. So it's fascinating to me. You think about this scene now. Neither Herod nor the Jewish spiritual, the Jewish political leaders even went to Bethlehem to go find out for themselves. It's not recorded in the Bible, at least. So here they, they find this out, but they don't bother to go and check it out. They were made aware of the prophecy of Micah 5.2. They received dual confirmation, the star, the arrival of the Magi from the east, all of that was prophesied, and all of it was within their ability to understand. But his response is understandable. He's not Jewish, and he fears a rival claim to the throne. So Israel had been waiting for centuries for their Messiah 
to come. They knew the prophets. And there's a lot of prophecy about his first coming. He fulfilled every prophecy, about 180 of them, fulfilled every prophecy, crossed every T, dotted every I, to what the prophets said about his first coming. He fulfilled every bit of it. Every bit. Now, the leaders had the same knowledge as the Magi. Their prophecies were written in their own scriptures. They, it was being fulfilled right before their eyes. They should, have, they should have been the first ones to go investigate what's happening, what's going on. What's the problem? The Jewish leadership had long departed from a literal interpretation of Scripture. They're allegorizing. They're spiritualizing. And what happened? The Sadducees, who were one of the ruling parties, they pre rejected predictive prophecy. If you reject prophecy, you might as well tear out a third of your Bible. And then you won't understand the rest of it. And they say, well, that's not meant for our time. Well, there are scoffers that say that now. So what was the results? This event, even though they knew the scriptures and they knew what they were to be looking for, they ignored it. And they missed the event for which they had longed. The Magi of the East, though, they saw their sign. And they were willing to embark on this perilous journey in enemy territory. Because what are they hunting? We're seeking the one born king of the Jews, and we want to worship him. I end with Titus 2.11. This scripture tells us about our past salvation, what we're to be doing now, and what the future is. Look at it, Titus 2.11. The grace of God has been revealed, and it brings salvation to all people. That's in the past. The next verse, the present. He teaches and instructs us. You are to deny ungodliness and your worldly desires. You're to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. That's present. And what am I to be looking for and not miss it? I am looking for my blessed hope and the glorious appearing of my great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't want to miss it. So I'm looking for it every day, the rapture, when he comes to take us away and take us to heaven before the seven-year tribulation period starts. That's what I believe the Bible teaches. So I hope you enjoyed this lesson on these signs. And when I studied that, it just, it just even puts my heart even more in cement. I am cemented in this word because I believe every bit of it. It is literal, and I believe everything on the authority of God's word. Don't spiritualize it. Don't allegorize it because you may miss something. So uh, I hope all of you have a wonderful Christmas. Uh, we plan to uh, start back up on January the 10th. On the 10th. Not the 3rd because I'm actually going to be in Oklahoma City speaking at a church on the 3rd. So, on the 10th. <laughs> so, um, some of you have asked about Laura, and I will just briefly tell you that um, she, is, she feels like, since that cavitation process, 
that her 